So the first reading is Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, and page 724 of the Pew Bibles. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Second readings from Acts 12, verses 1 to 24, on page 1106. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the anointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do sit down. Very warm welcome to you. Happy British summertime. It's here finally. Kind of, maybe. But uh, we have God's word in front of us, so let's pray. If you can turn back to page 1106. And let's look at this together now. Father God, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes. You'd help us to see and hear what you are saying here through your word. How it helps us today to trust in Jesus and live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does winning in life look like? You know that phrase, you, are you winning at life? What does, it, what does it mean? What does it look like? I asked the, uh, the new AI Bing uh, this question. Who does Bing think is winning at life? And initially, Bing refused to take a view and said it was a subjective question. But I pressed it. And I said, okay, who would be widely thought to be winning at life? And Bing said, Bill Gates, fairly predictable. Elon Musk, a bit more controversial. Steve Jobs, great as he was, I think it's hard to say he's winning at life given that sadly he is in fact dead. Uh, Beyonce, 32 Grammy Awards, the highest of all time, coupled with noble activism and philanthropy. I don't know who'd be on your list of people that you think are winning at life. I guess many people would say winning at life has something to do with the unholy trinity of money and sex and power. 
and getting as much of each as is possible. And on the face of it, Acts chapter 12, that we've just heard read, begins with it looking very clear who is and isn't winning at life. On the one hand, there is Herod. And the Herods in the Bible keep changing. I don't know if you've noticed this. There are six of them mentioned during the time that the New Testament books cover. They're all called Herod. But this one is Herod Agrippa I. And he's doing pretty well on the power front. Uh, Almost certainly the money front, probably in many other ways too. The Herods are the Roman-approved kings of the Jews. They have two main objectives. To impress Rome and then to keep the Jewish people that they rule happy and under control. So here, as you'll see in more detail in a minute, is Herod, and he has murdered James, one of the followers of Jesus. And he's got Peter in prison. And it's clear that if he is winning at life, and everything's going well from his point of view, keeping everything under control, he's winning. The Christians are not winning at life. That's how it seems. They're on the back foot. The book of Acts began with Jesus' great promise that the good news about him would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what a promise. And there's certainly been some growth and expansion in these first 11 chapters that we've seen. But now, look at these followers. Throughout history and still today, there have been many times when it looks like the people who are winning at life are the enemies of God's people. And God's people themselves are suffering and struggling and everything is going wrong. We might think that today when we look around the world at the persecution that continues. We might think that today when we look at Christians with headlines of diminishing numbers and struggling faith and eternal conflict and sin among Christian leaders, it doesn't look very impressive or hopeful at times. We might look at weakness and suffering in our own lives and despair at how feeble it all feels. But here in Acts chapter 12, by the end of the chapter, everything has changed. And we're going to see how, and we're going to see the implications of that for our lives today. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet, um, three headings for, for our time. First of all, God's enemies persecute. God's enemies persecute. Verses 1 to 4. Let's see in a bit more detail the seriousness of the situation faced by God's people at the start of chapter 12. So in verse 2, there's James, put to death with the sword, just like that. There are quite a few people named James among the disciples. This is the one out of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who incidentally asked for seats at Jesus' right hand in glory in the Gospels and, and made a foolhardy statement that they could indeed drink the cup that he would drink, the cup of suffering and judgment that Jesus was to face alone. And for James, that has now literally happened, following in the steps of his saviour. When Islamic State swept through Iraq and Syria a few years ago, there were scenes like that, weren't there? Photographs of empty living rooms where a Christian family had been seized and the men beheaded. I remember in one of those photos you could see the family Bible still open on the sofa. They'd been reading it and presumably praying as the IS terrorists approached. 
And then by the time the photo was taken, some or all of them were dead. It's serious and it's terrifying. And that sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. These are the conditions under which the Christians are living. The sort of thing they fear is very real for them. As James has been killed, Peter has been captured, they're really, really terrified. And there's something faintly ridiculous but sinister about the number of guards that they feel is necessary for this fisherman from Galilee. Can you see that? Four squads of four soldiers each, verse 4. So there is no doubt here who's in charge. There's no doubt who has the upper hand, who is winning. Roman soldiers aren't people you can argue with. They're not people you can escape from. They're not people you can expect mercy from. And it's worth noticing what what exactly is motivating Herod in his actions here. So verse 3, he wants to please the Jewish people and gain their favour. It's a chance to win brownie points with the constituency, as it were. It's political expediency that makes him act in this way. And totalitarian governments around the world continue to this day to act in this way towards Christians in their countries. Whether it's China, Iran, Pakistan, North Korea, wherever you might look. But increasingly, actually wanting to please the culture is also a motivator for leaders even closer to home. Even in the UK, the world has changed its mind on the big moral issues. You Christians really ought to do the same, or we'll use the power of Parliament to force you. Now that sort of thing is not the same by any means as being put in prison for your Christian faith. But all of this puts Christians on the back foot. It makes us feel like all is lost or is going to be lost. And everything is heading inevitably in the direction of decline and irrelevance and obscurity. And if we stopped here at verse 4 in chapter 12, well, that's all we could say. God's enemies persecute, and it's all terrible, and let's go home. But in verse 5, everything changes. Can you see that? Peter was kept in prison Is somebody at the back? Someone's just coming at the back, if you wouldn't mind um, going to check. Oh, no, it's all right. Everything's fine. Peter's kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Things looked terrible. They'd not just got uh, one or two or four, but 16 guards on Peter, 24-7, but... The church was earnestly praying to God for him. And that changes everything. So let's see. Secondly, God's people pray. Verse 5 to 17. It's worth looking through this again, isn't it? But Look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two uh, chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. He's between two guards. It's at least double what would normally be required for a prisoner at night, but they're taking no chances. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea 
that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Do you notice the early church wasn't gullible about supernatural events, like people being broken out of prison by angels? You know, Peter himself doesn't quite believe it. He, he thinks he must be dreaming. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So just, just picture the scene here for, for a moment. There they are. They're in the house, the Christians. And they're doing what God's people do in crisis. They're praying earnestly. So, Lord, please have mercy on Peter. We don't know what else to do, Lord. We mourn our brother James, and now we fear for Peter. Lord, would you please do something extraordinary? Lord, please, would you maybe even send an angel to rescue him like you did when the apostles were put in prison by the Sadducees that time? Rhoda, could you just go and see who's at the door? Just tell them to come back later. We're praying at the moment. They're interrupting a prayer meeting. Let's get back to praying. Lord, please, will you rescue Peter? Sorry, what did you say? Peter's at the door? Don't be ridiculous. Oh, oh, you insist? Well, no, it can't be. It can't be Peter. He's in prison. That's why we're praying for him. Don't you get it? It must be his angel. And on it goes. When they say it must be his angel, they, they, you know, they, could, they could think it's a human messenger. It's the same word, actually, from Peter. It could mean that they're thinking of that thing that people occasionally report when somebody dies. And the, the people don't know that yet, but they have a momentary but very vivid sense of the presence of that person with them. But either way, they're not thinking clearly. And while they are praying, the last thing they expect is for God actually to answer that prayer there and then. And we kind of smile at that, but aren't we exactly the same? You know, we pray perhaps because we feel we ought to, but we don't really expect anything to happen. Back in 2006, Turkmenistan was ruled by President Sapamurat Nyazov, a dictator who made life miserable for the Christians of Turkmenistan. And on the 20th of December 2006, the Barnabas Fund had an entry in their prayer diary about him. And the Barnabas Fund was an organisation a bit like Open Doors in those days, supporting the, the, the persecuted church. And the prayer diary entry for that day, the 20th of December 2006, said this. I'll just read it to you. It said, Turkmenistan is supposed to be a secular state with freedom of religion. But since 1997, there's been suppression and persecution of most religious groups apart from Sunni Muslims and Russian Orthodox Christians. The extremely authoritarian President Nyazov is reported to have said he will strangle the church. Many Christians have been forced to renounce their faith, expelled from their homes, imprisoned and tortured. It is hardly surprising that Christians are leaving the country in large numbers, but thank the Lord that many ethnic Turkmens are deciding to follow Christ. 
Pray that President Nyazov will realise that the church cannot be squeezed out of existence and will cease his campaign against Christians. So thousands of Christians in the UK and elsewhere duly prayed on that day. And in the early hours of the following morning, President Nyazov died of a heart attack. Now that's a relatively high profile example of this kind of thing. But we may well have our own stories if we've been trusting Jesus for a while. When I was 17, I came to faith in Jesus and duly began to pray for my family who weren't Christians. And my dad in particular was a scientifically minded atheist. And I remember still saying to him one day with youthful zeal, you know, but dad, what is going to happen when you die? And he said, when I die, I will rot. End of conversation. Leave me alone. So I kind of prayed half-heartedly, because that's what you're supposed to do. And within about four years, my whole family, including my dad, had come to faith. Now, some will be sitting here thinking, well, I've prayed, and that hasn't happened. And there are plenty of other ways in which I've prayed and not yet seen the, that, that, that answer for the thing that I've been praying for in that way. And, and one answer to that is, well, it hasn't happened yet. That is one answer, isn't it? But maybe it's too late now, like it was with James here. It clearly isn't the case, even in this chapter, with these extraordinary things going on, that God answers every prayer in the way that we want. Or that every Christian will be rescued from whatever danger they are in. The point is actually something deeper than that. We often talk about the power of prayer. The point is that the power of prayer is not in our words, but in the God that we pray to. And that is why when we read back in verse 5, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him, that is what changes everything. It's not because of the words that they prayed. It's not even because of the faith with which they prayed. Well, it's very clear, isn't it? They were weak. They only half believed God could do this. It's because the God they prayed to was a God who could do this. In the end, this chapter is about a clash between two kings. The king who thinks he reigns over all and has all the power, and the king who actually does. And that's what we see then as the chapter comes to a close. We see, thirdly, God's word prospers. So despite what has happened, Herod remains the king to be feared. There is no small commotion, it says, verse 18, among the soldiers, because it's well known if a prisoner escapes, the one responsible for guarding them will be executed, which is what Herod orders. But then he moves on to other business. He's got some issues with the people of Tyre and Sidon who are trying to make peace because they want Judean food. And remember, in the end, this is a clash of kings. And just note, we've, we've had two chapters in a row that finish with a food crisis. 
And we see two very different approaches. One is about the generosity of God's people at the end of chapter 11. The church in Antioch, thinking not of itself but others, the church in Jerusalem, a famine that was foreseen but seems still yet to take place at this point. But their response to a food crisis had been to give. But then there's another response here at the end of chapter 12, which is about the politics of God's enemies. Herod making even the relief of poverty a moment for politics. And it's not that politics will never get you anywhere, but more that here it reveals Herod's pride and confidence, not in God, but in himself. And that is the issue that leads to his downfall. As he sits on his throne in his royal robes, verse 21, do you see that? A big grand occasion, look at me, here I come, you know, and you'll sit before me and listen to me. And they shout, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And he thinks something like, well, you might say that, I couldn't possibly comment. And the judgment comes instantly in verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Being eaten by worms sounds a bit weird to our eyes is today, but it was a common trope in ancient literature for describing the death of people who deserved it. It's a President Niazov moment. The chapter began with, with Herod all-powerful and winning at life, and now we see who rules really. And verse 24 sums it up. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, thus the people of God triumphed over their enemies. The chapter is not about God's people. We've seen they are weak, they're unimpressive with their half-hearted prayers, but Luke's message is be encouraged anyway because God's word is going to keep growing and spreading and flourishing. It's a phrase that keeps coming up through the book of Acts, often at key transition moments, a kind of summary of what's going on. It reminds us that from Luke's perspective, that is what this book is about. Not about the people, actually, it's about the gospel, the good news about Jesus and how that message gets to the whole world from Jerusalem. It's about that. That is the point of what's going on in this book, before it's about the apostles or the church. And so we say to God, we say, you know, God, what's the, what's the plan? When we face suffering and pain and confusion and life feels out of control and crazy and the church around us makes decisions we don't understand, what is the plan, God? What are you doing, we say? This is the plan. This is what I'm doing. He says, my word, the message about Jesus, will not be stopped. We heard in Isaiah 40, the word of God endures forever. It will get where it needs to go. It will have the effect it needs to have. Later in, in, in that book of Isaiah, <clears throat> God says that that word will not return to me empty. His kingdom will expand and it will grow. And that helps us make sense of the mixed circumstances of this chapter and the mixed circumstances of our world and the mixed circumstances of our own lives. As the chapter ends, Herod is dead. Hooray! But 
so too is James. Peter is rescued. James wasn't. And we look around the world today and we think, you know, we in the West get to meet as Christians in relative freedom and prosperity for the time being. Millions meet in fear for their lives and persecution is a daily reality. We look at our church in this country and we, and we think, oh, it's all so depressing with leaders doing crazy things. Or we look at our, our own lives and we think, you know, so-and-so prayed and their prayer was answered as they asked and I've prayed and it feels like I'm banging my head against a brick wall. Well, God's word is going to spread no matter what. That is what is going on. And if we're trusting Jesus, our lives are part of how that happens. See, it's not all about us and our comfort here and now. It's about finding our place in that plan that starts now and lasts beyond suffering and death and weakness and fear and sin into eternity. So are you winning at life? Well, if you're trusting Jesus, then you're on the side of the word of God, which is going to spread and going to flourish. No king can stop that. No earthly power. No disease or sickness. No sin or suffering. Our faith will often feel weak and feeble and ineffective like the disciples here. But we trust a God whose plan won't fail, whose word will prosper. The Puritan Richard Sibbs put it like this, cast yourself into the arms of Christ and if you perish, perish there. Cast yourself into the arms of Christ. And if you perish, perish there. You might be James who died. You might be Peter who is rescued. You will almost certainly be the disciples praying weakly and ineffectively. But the word of God will spread and flourish. So you can trust him. Let's pray now. as we reflect on our own response to what we've heard. Heavenly Father, we know that we are weak. Our faith is so often weak. And we struggle. But our faith is not in ourselves, it is in you. And you are a God of power 
created the world and sent your son to die so that we might live as we trust in him. And so, Heavenly Father, would you help us to fix our eyes afresh on Jesus and cast ourselves on him as we trust you for your word to spread and flourish, for your plan to come to full fruition. As we play our part in spreading the good news about Jesus to the world around us. If we're yet to trust in Jesus for ourselves, help us to see that he asks us simply to cast ourselves on him, not in strength but in weakness. And to do that even today for the first time. And we praise you for the confidence we can have when we rest in Christ, whatever our circumstances. Amen.